I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, One day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream that inspired a nation. The dream moved a people to action. Dreams are powerful things. They fill us with hope for our world. They help us believe in what could be possible. They inspire us to do something to change this world that we live in. They tap into the deepest longings of our hearts for a better world. This is our last week of our Dream Big series. And I thought, how could we not mention Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream in a series on God's dreams? We've talked about God's dream for you individually this year is your growth. That your growth is the glory of God. We've talked about how God's dream for us together is team. That us working together is God's dream us becoming a people, us working together, a highly efficient, loving team. This week we ask the question, what is God's dream for this whole world? To answer that question, we're going to turn to a passage in 2 Peter 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn that. It'll be up on the screen. I'm going to read it to us. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read this whole chapter. It's a little lengthy. Stay with us. And we'll see if we can follow the the logic of thought that that St. Peter is writing here. Okay, 2 Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, 
Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same Word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth will, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found with, with, by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he done in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. What is God's dream for this world? What is His ultimate hope for what will happen on this earth? What is God's vision for what the world could, should, may, will look like someday? It's this. God's dream is all things new. God's dream is a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. All things made right. God's dream is to come and ultimately and finally rescue His people from all of the wickedness of this world, all of the sin, all of our own pain, all of the abuse, all of the struggle, every tear wiped away. God's dream is to know us and for Him to know Him fully forever. And this is, this is the subject of the passage we just read. This whole thing is centered on what is coming. Will God come back and what is it going to be like? And you heard, I've already said it twice, 
You know, Peter's central phrase that it's a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness, meaning justice, meaning God's will finally done everywhere in every place for all time. The Bible uses a metaphor for this. The metaphor of a wedding. And the Bible uses it because everybody loves weddings. Now, there's probably some other reasons, but, right? Everybody loves weddings. God's dream is a wedding with an actual happily ever after. Because as we all know that are married, that's not actually how it works out. But that's the dream that God has for us. All through the scriptures, this, this analogy is used. That, that God's people are a bride. Throughout the whole Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a bride. And oftentimes as an unfaithful bride. In the New Testament, you hear Jesus telling these parables, these stories to explain what is going to happen. And he talks about a wedding. right? This, this, this parable of these, these virgins getting ready with oil for the bridegroom to come. And another one where God is inviting, well, not God, but that's what he's representing. This guy is inviting all these people to this wedding. And many of them say no. And then he brings in others. This, this analogy is all throughout the scriptures. Listen to what Revelation um, 21 says about God's dream. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The exact same language. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That is the dream of God. It's a dream for His Son to finally have His bride. Jesus has been waiting a long time to get married. To finally have the consummation of all of this human history. And you know what? This dream is not a hope as much as it is a certainty. This will happen. Revelation is saying this is what will come. This is where we are headed. Now, this sounds awesome. I mean, no more pain, no more death. Why the wait? Why wouldn't God make it happen now? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus has been here. Why is God waiting so long to usher in this final kingdom? His kingdom in its fullness. His presence in its fullness. Eliminating every result of man's sin on this earth. Why hasn't it happened yet? It's because the wedding doesn't start until the bride is ready. The wedding doesn't start until the bride is ready. Everyone knows this is true. 
The wedding's all about the bride. If she's delayed, everyone is getting a little nervous. But the wedding never starts until the doors are opened and the bride walks down the aisle. And she's got a lot to do that day to get ready, doesn't she? Right? You've got the hair appointment, maybe a massage, okay? The makeup. You've got to get all the bridesmaids together and organized. It is a large ordeal, right? And there's all the readiness that happened in all those months leading up to the wedding. Engaged means engaged. Meaning you have a lot to get busy about to make this thing happen, right? And it all comes down to that final moment. And the wedding doesn't really start until the bride is ready. And that is what Peter is talking about in this passage. See, he's addressing mockers, scoffers. And apparently they've been doing this for 2,000 years. Hey, where's Jesus? I read the Bible. I know what it says. It says, I will be with you soon. I'm coming very soon. Well, where is he? You hear all this talk about God making all things good. Well, it hasn't happened yet. There's not a whole lot of justice happening on this earth right now. This world's always existed just the way that it does now. Nothing's ever going to change. Right? You hear these similar objections. Right? It's been 2,000 years now. You really think Jesus is coming back? You hold now for that? God didn't create the world, right? I know the fundamental laws of physics, right? Matter cannot be created or destroyed, but can be changed in form. A new heaven and a new earth is a fantasy. People being resurrected from the dead have challenged that idea, right? The atoms that people were in people's bodies, you know, thousands of years ago, went into the earth, became dirt, plants grew, people ate those plants. Now those atoms are in your body. What's God going to, like, make more atoms or something? It's nonsense, people say. Right? This world's messed up. How could you possibly make it right? So Peter knows these objections, and he's countering them with a number of arguments in this passage. Okay? One, the world hasn't always existed. God created it by His Word. Now notice, he's not, he's not coming up with some convoluted, logical argument. He's just preaching what the Bible says. He's saying, nope, that's false. This is what the Bible says. And I'm not dismissing that. We had a whole series on that last spring about you know, logical things in our what-if series. But he's just speaking, this is what is truth. God created the whole world out of his word. And you hear these references to that, to Genesis 1 in this passage, both creating by his word and this whole out of water and through water. I don't know if you know Genesis 1 through 6 through 7. talks about you know, God separating the waters from the water. Kind of the ancient Israelite idea was that there was water above them because rain came down. There's water you know, around because of the ocean. So God made kind of dry ground come up in the heavens above where the Birds would fly between those waters. Peter's referencing that. So second, Peter's saying, hey, the world was totally destroyed or somehow fundamentally altered in the flood. He's saying the world hasn't always been the same. There was this catastrophic flood that changed somehow the reality of what the world is. Um, so he's, he's challenging this idea that, you know, hey, this is, you know, this is a result of the Big Bang and things will just continue until our earth, you know, winds around and crashes into the sun someday. He's saying, hey, the world isn't always as it was. There was some fundamental change. Again, referencing the book of Genesis. Okay, point number three, God's timing is in our timing. You hear him quoting Psalm uh, 90 verse 4, that a thousand years, right, 
are as one day to the Lord and one day is a thousand years. God's timing isn't the same as our timing. So what seems like a delay or slowness to us, Peter's saying it's not that way from the heavenly perspective. Now the point is not that, you know, one day is exactly a thousand years, okay, in heaven. He's not coming up with some math formula. Okay, he wasn't a math teacher, I don't think. Maybe he was. No, sorry. Okay, we'll go there. That's not the point. The point is just, hey, heavenly timing is different than our timing. Heavenly perspective. God is a being that is outside of time, okay? It's a totally different thing. What appears slow to us is not to God. But the fourth point is the real kicker. God's perceived slowness is due to his patience. It's due to his love. Because what does it say? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, Peter is saying there's a reason, there's a delay. It's because the bride's not ready. It's because there's more people that God is longing to enter into his kingdom. So we we see another aspect of God's dream teased out here. His dream is that all peoples would know him. That none should perish. That everyone should come to repentance. He wants everyone to be a part of his family. Period. That is the reason for the delay. There's certainty in this dream that one day that will happen. But it almost feels like Peter is teasing out a little bit of this uncertainty of God is longing for something that may not be sure. And we know the Bible says it's probably not. The way is wide that leads to destruction and the way is narrow that leads to life. God is longing for everyone. His dream is that for none would perish, but all would come to repentance. And that does not seem like it will be the case in other places in Scripture. But we do know for sure, as the book of Revelation states, that one day all peoples and tribes and language and nations will worship God. There's a certainty that one day it will happen and there's some uncertainty in here too. Now, I love this passage for a lot of reasons, but one of them is it just blows up lots of theological boxes. Because how are you going to explain this one? God wants everyone to be saved. He wants no one to perish. And somehow he's also sovereign. And he calls people to himself. And no one comes to him but that he would call them. I don't know how to explain that. The explanations I hear most of the time aren't that satisfying. So let's just embrace the mystery of that. And not relinquish the the force of what this passage says. Or try to excuse it in some way. The Lord is not slow. To fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. This is not the only place in scripture where this is said. For, you know, I think it's First Timothy talks about this. But even in Ezekiel. Say to them, as I live, as I live. The Lord is saying, I bet this on my own life and existence. Declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? A commentator I read quoted, I'm just going to quote, it was brilliant. God wants everyone to be saved, and if he came now, too many people would perish. God's mercy causes a hesitation in his justice. The wedding doesn't start, you know when, until the bride is ready. And at this point, the bride is not ready. One day, all peoples will stand before the throne praising the Lord. And at this point, there are many peoples that have no one that knows the name of Jesus. Okay, how does this affect our lives? If God is calling us to understand this truth that the wedding doesn't start until the bride is ready, how does that impact my everyday life? Putting my kids to bed. Getting up. Eating breakfast. Going to work. Going on a vacation. Brushing my teeth. Right? All of these different pieces that compose our lives. How does this affect our life? Is this for the missionaries? Is this for people that see Bibles fall out of heaven? The last speaker on the, on the left that you'll hear at World Mandate, Jim Yost, raised somebody from the dead. Is it only for people like that? Superheroes of the Christian world? People that have a, a real call for the nations. You know, that just I like international things. I like spicy food. You know, I like to, you know, often get sick when I travel. Things like that, right? I'm afraid of those things. Is that who this is for? Just the, the missionaries, the superstars? How does this affect our lives? Well, I think it's a pretty simple conclusion. If the wedding doesn't start until the bride is ready, let's get the bride ready. Because I don't know about you, but I'm sick of pain. And I'm sick of seeing suffering on the news. And I'm sick of it in my own life. And I'm sick of my own sin. I'm sick. I'm ready for Jesus to come back. Can you imagine if at the conclusion of the sermon, maybe he would even cut me off because this isn't that great. If Jesus just walked in and this was it. It ended today. Can you imagine? I mean, we are talking about something that is unfathomable. The Bible can't even describe it. The English language, the Greek that the New Testament was written in, is, is too limited to describe the wonder of what it will be like to stand with Jesus face to face and know that you'll never feel pain again. You'll never mourn again or grieve. All of it will be done away. Can you imagine that? If He was to walk in now because the bride was ready, The way it changes our lives is that now we read every aspect of our lives through this grid of getting the bride ready because we're longing to see Jesus. We are eagerly awaiting His return and we want to what? Hasten the day? Let's blow up another theological box. The sovereignty of God over all human history? Absolutely true. 
We can hasten the day. The Bible said that too. Fit those together and you can get a PhD. Okay? Somehow, this fits together in the heavenly realm. That we can hasten the day. We can bring it closer than it is now by getting the bride ready. Now, there's two ways that that needs to happen. According to this passage, and it seems throughout Scripture, there's a certain amount of maturity that a bride needs to be married. Okay? So obviously there's the, the physical aspect, you know, puberty. So in some cultures, women get married, you know, younger. So there's, there's, but all cultures kind of see this physical, you know, development of a woman. So that at this point now, she's ready to bear children. She's ready to be wed. There's also the cultural side of, of kind of emotional stability or, you know, and some people look at financial stability. All these different pieces that come together to getting the bride ready. And it's the same for us. Peter's point in this passage is he mentions, okay, so how should we live in holiness and godliness? And then he repeats as a summary in his last paragraph. They should be without spot or blemish. There's a maturing of the people of God that is needing to happen for the bride to be ready to walk down the aisle and marry Jesus. So our obedience matters. Every little thing that we do, right? Every little piece is, is, is adding to the obedience of the bride of Christ. It's getting her ready. It's no small thing that you walk by and pick up a piece of trash off the ground out of obedience to Jesus and making this world a better place and caring for it the way that He would want and you know, doing your recycling. Right? All these little things that we do, that simple act of apologizing to a friend that you, you thought maybe you had insulted in some way, you're raising the bar of obedience in the people of God. The water level is rising. The bride is getting more ready. Your obedience matters. That is one of the major themes of the book of Revelation. It is that our, the obedience of the saints is extremely important. Because there's a maturity of the bride that needs to happen. Listen to what Revelation 19 says just on that line. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You hear the obedience there, the readiness. The bride has made herself ready through the righteous deeds that she has performed. She is ready to marry Jesus. Obedience matters. Every little act of obedience, every step that we take to become freer from sin and freer from lies and, and freer from fear is a step to the bride being ready. It's not just a win for you. It's a win for all of us. Right? Your win is the entire bride's win. The second aspect, though, in the maturity of this bride is this sense of the increase of the number of people following Jesus. 
And for one, it has to be that there is a witness in every single tribe, tongue, language, nation, people group. That has to happen because we know in Revelation it says, quoting it again, and after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, that will happen. And it hasn't happened yet. So this is the second aspect. And this is the whole delay in Peter's passage that he's writing. This is the whole delay that he is giving. He's saying, right, again, the delay is due to the fact that more people need to turn to God. If God came now, too many people would perish. And God doesn't want that. So we hasten the day. We get the bride ready by reaching every last person on this earth in every language and tongue and tribe and nation. And it's interesting the way that these two things interplay. Because as the bride becomes more mature, she gets a way more passion for the ends of the earth. A mature bride knows both of these parts. As she grows in obedience, she's going to grow in passion for the ends of the earth. They go together. Now, this is the why of world mandate. We want people to encounter Jesus, to be radically changed this coming weekend. That the Holy Spirit would fall and that people would never be the same. Fears would be destroyed by the love of God. Lies would be exposed to the devil that you've been clinging on to for years in your life and the truth of God would penetrate like never before. That wounds that you've had in your past would be healed. And that you'd be freed from sin like never before. That's a goal in and of itself, but it is always tied to the call to reach the nations. And these are the two things that World Mandate is about. It's about you getting rocked by God, and therefore the nations getting rocked on this earth. All of which, so that the bride can be made ready. Because we want to see Jesus. And we want to see this world made right. That is the wild world mandate. And we've got a long way to go, actually. If you are interested in seeing the progress of the gospel of Jesus, there's a website that is devoted to that and missiologists that are contributing to this. It's called joshuaproject.net. It tracks the progress of the gospel in every people group on earth that they know of that exists at this point. And I think there's something like 6,600 that we've got left to go by their estimates. Now that seems like a lot. But in my understanding, the church is coming together like never before in the history of the world to see this job finished. And so the question is, do you want to be a part of that? This could be it. Now Jesus says no one knows the the day or the hour of when he's coming, but this seems to be a prerequisite. So once the nations are reached, then Jesus can come when he wants or when the Father tells him to go. Right? I talked about this uh, this summer when we got back from our ICON uh, conference. And our movement, Antioch, is partnering like never before with all these different organizations. So this is, again, another time that this guy, Bikili, from, from Crew Campus Crusade, is going to speak at our conference. Because now Antioch, our larger movement, is partnering with them to see this mission happen. They're, they're, they've been in collaboration with Wycliffe. 
who is saying that the last Bible translators needed are now alive. You do the math. Right? It typically takes you know, a decade-ish to translate the Bible into somebody's language. So we're talking 30 years maybe for this to happen. For, you know, if, the, if the last one's a baby now they're estimating, hey, the Bible's going into every language. And Wycliffe is going to make sure that happens, right? New Tribes Missions, too, right? There's all these different groups that are coming together to see this done. And you know what we want to do? We just want to play our part. We want to do our part. From the little act of obedience that we do in our everyday life to praying, giving, and going to the nations. Let's get the bride ready. Because then we can see Jesus. Now, as we talk about the end of the world, the Bible paints two pictures, it feels like. There's a lot of kind of like, you know, doom and destruction and things will, you know, wickedness will increase. And you can hear some of that in the Gospels. But Peter seems to be painting the opposite picture. That this is not happening until there's some massive turning to God in these last days. Until God says, yes, right? I am now willing to come so that not too many people will perish. Are you feeling that tension there? Right? Let's believe for that. And let's start praying into this, this little phrase that I've been trying to throw around all the time that you'll start to believe it. The greatest awakening. The greatest awakening. Not this third great awakening in New England. The greatest. Because it'll be the last. Because it'll usher in the sending of peoples all over the world to finish this task and get the bride ready. Is anyone out there willing to believe that this is our generation's task? Let's hear it. Come on. And we're not just stirring up emotion here. This is the kingdom of God. And this is not mission impossible. It's not mission possible. It's not mission somewhat likely. This is mission guaranteed to happen. We have the spirit of the living God in us. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in his people. Let's become who we are and get this bride ready. And let's grid everything in our life around that the wedding doesn't start until the bride is ready. That is our reality grid. We make all decisions in life because how is this going to further the kingdom of God and get Jesus back here sooner? To hasten the day. If that sounds extreme, I'm sorry. Because Jesus is extreme. And I'm sick and tired of suffering. And I don't want to live a life because I'm tempted to that is just move towards comfort and move towards these excuses that Neil gave last week of convenience and comfort and just playing it safe. Lord, don't let me do that. Let me give all so that all may know Jesus. Let me lay it all down so that Jesus will come sooner because God says it's time. Because you won't have to mourn the loss of so many billions that do not know even the name of Jesus. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. 
With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with a new meaning, My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must come true. So let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when this happens, we will allow freedom to ring when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city. We'll be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Man, that is an awesome dream. And it's an awesome dream because it's only a slice of God's dream. That all the world would know Jesus. That there would not just be freedom ringing but no more pain or suffering. And the presence of God would dwell among men. That's God's dream. But the wedding doesn't start until the bride is ready. Let's get her ready. Let's have the band come up. I'm going to pray and lead us in some response today. Lord, you are longing to send Jesus back so he can finally be married. But things need to happen first, Lord. It seems that your word is saying we need to get more mature. We need to obey. We need to grow in this. And that is your will is our growth. It's your glory. And there's also a job to be done, Lord of reaching all nations with the Gospel. So we pray, Jesus. Help. We ask for help. Help to get rid of the lies that say this is impossible or we can't do it or I can't play a part. Help, Jesus, to believe that every little act of obedience, from being patient with our kids to... Uh, yeah, Lord, being kind to a coworker. Every little thing matters, Jesus. So, Lord, we just ask you now to highlight in our lives uh, where have we not lived to get the bride ready? Where have we not placed this as a grid before us, Lord? So just invite you to, to dialogue with the Lord a little bit as the band's amping up and just ask him some simple questions. Lord, what are you calling me to do to get the bride ready? Is there personal obedience that needs to happen? 
Is there a call to go to the nations? Is there a call to even you know, give more to the missions of God financially? Is there a call to commit yourself to prayer for the nations to happen? To pray for the level of obedience to, to be raised up? So just, you all have the Spirit. We are all, as followers of Jesus, priests. We hear from the Lord. So God, we just ask you to speak. Highlight the ways that you are calling us to get the bride ready. In Jesus' name. Thank you.